Well, welcome back. We're going to continue on with our Yeah, What About series. And last week we talked about uh, what about sin? You know, what, what do we do with that? You know, Scripture tells us uh, now that we're under law, not under law, but we're under grace, it says things like, but because we're under grace, do we continue to sin in order that grace might increase? Well, may it never be. How shall we who have died to sin, to sin still walk in it? All right, so we, we, we're not to walk in sin. We're not to continue to do those things that are contrary to the nature and the character of God, which we are being conformed to. But we also talked about a few weeks ago about how the, uh, the focus of our attention has a, has a tendency to be what we do or where we go. And so, okay, I, I want to recognize what's not right about the way I live and act, but I also want to um, focus on something else. Well, we're going to talk about that today. You know, we talked about focusing on Christ. And what, how does that work? How does that happen? How do we change our focus from something that's very real right in front of us, whatever the temptation is, whatever the thing it is that we're being drawn towards, and focus on something that's not like this table, that's not tangible like our temptation. You know, the Spirit of Christ within us is real as real can be. Uh, but we're to focus on the Lord Jesus Christ and his life within us uh, and through him getting to know our Heavenly Father. We've been talking about that for months now, how the real um, purpose of our existence is to know him and trust him to the point that when we live our lives, we are living the life that he's living. We are, like, like Galatians says, no longer I who live uh, but Christ lives in me. So the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So how do we do that? Well, our Heavenly Father is not a distant um, figure in this whole scenario. He's a very real, present Father. And he loves us beyond our ability to even comprehend. And he's, he's actively involved in our daily life, but not punitively. He's not just walking around with a big stick or a ruler smacking us on the back of the hands like maybe we got in school, you know, if we cut up in class or something like that. Um, Jesus took our punishment on the cross. All right, so he's not punishing us punitively because of the things we do that are still out of character. But he's, he's doing some things that we're going to talk about today to help us realize and experience the nature that is now ours through new birth and the indwelling Holy Spirit. And we talked about in the past also how, you know, when a baby is born, they're fully human. They have all the equipment. They just don't know how to do human yet. You have to learn how to walk and talk and use a knife and a fork and a spoon and a drink out of a cup and eventually maybe drive a car or whatever. That doesn't make them more human when they learn how to do those things. They're just learning to express their humanity. They had to grow and mature. And the Father is very committed to bringing us to maturity. But it's through love and acceptance, not through rejection and disdain or disappointment. Okay, he's, he's very different than what we've ever experienced on planet Earth. We may have a tendency to feel like He's being disappointed and 
disgusted with us or um, whatever. But that's because we have a tendency to think that God is like other people we've known. And, but he's not. He's very different. You know, the scripture says, um, I am God and there is no other. Uh, there's no one like me. Who is like God that forgives iniquity and sin? He, just, he is very forgiving and kind. Uh, when he describes himself, he describes himself as gracious and forgiving and merciful, uh, all of those things. Yet he holds us accountable, and he, he, he is that way. But his, his reason for holding his children accountable is not to humiliate and punish them, it's to help them realize that they're acting out of character. That's not who you are. Okay, I'm your father, and you're like me, and I'm helping you be like me. That was what he started with when he said, let us make man in our image and according to our likeness, and he's still on that plan. You know, the New Testament tells us we're being conformed to the image of Christ, and he is the very image of the unseen God, it says in Hebrews 1. All right, so what we're going to do today is start working our way through Hebrews chapter 12 in the context of what we've been talking about. Okay, so we have this problem that we have a tendency to continue to do those things that are not consistent with who we are as a child of God. Well, remember, everything that God does or doesn't do and everything in the Scripture I believe, needs to be seen in the context of what God is doing. Uh, just like when we're building a house, everything you do and don't do, uh, in order to get that house built and keep it from being weird and falling down and be good structurally and aesthetically pleasing to look at and all that, it is really based on a blueprint, a design that was set out before we ever turned the first spade of dirt to lay a foundation. Well, when God is making us, the Bible says we are his workmanship, he started with a blueprint, and himself is the blueprint. He makes himself our prototype, if you will, being conformed to his image. He said, I'm, I'm going to complete you. I'm going to make you just like me. He that began a good work in you will bring it to completion. So... He is still working on the blueprint, which is himself, being replicated in us. Now, we will never become God, okay? We're not going to be equal to God. He will always be God, and we will always not be God. But he made us to be like him in nature and character and the way we live and treat one another and all that. You know, we're to love one another as Christ loved us, the Bible tells us. Okay, so in Hebrews 12, it starts out like this. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside also every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. All right, let's stop right there. We got this thing going on, and we're, we're in a, he describes it like a race, the writer of Hebrews do, and, and it takes endurance. This is more the marathon than the sprint. It's really going to take some endurance, okay? And the Bible talks about endurance in several places. We might ought to look at that a little deeper sometime. But this endurance doesn't come to the runner the very first day he decides to be a runner. Endurance comes from running a lot 
staying in the race. Keep going. Get up every morning and go for a run. I know some runners. Now I realize that uh, every illustration kind of breaks down. We're not learning to express our new divine nature that we were given through new birth that's like our father by self-effort and hard work. Uh, more of the endurance I sense over the years has been the resolve in my inner man to stick with it, to not let the obstacles or the difficulties, you know, for the runner, if it's all flat ground and cool air, no big deal, but then there's these hills and sometimes it gets hot and there's potholes and you know, the leg starts aching and all that kind of stuff. So sometimes in our walk with God, it's not all flat level cool air experiences. There seems to be these uphill climbs at times and we feel exhausted. Um, and I think spiritually that has a tendency to happen when we are depending more on ourselves than we are him. But sometimes we just feel exhausted. You know, Christ, who always walked with the Father and was careful, always do those things he said that please his Father, was asleep in a boat. He was exhausted. Um, one day he was sweating blood uh, over the difficulty. We're going to talk about that very passage here in just a second. All right, so... The way we do this is fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author, and it says in this, in this translation, the perfecter, which means finisher, completer, uh, the one who um, brings to fruition that which faith produces. Okay, he's the author. He taught us how to, what faith is. He showed us what it is by the way he trusted his father. And he's perfecting or completing or um, bringing to fullness that walk of faith in us. All right, so he shows us how to do that. And it goes on and it says this, who for the joy before him, he endured the cross. You know, it talked about endurance. Um, we need to run with endurance. Well, the, one of the difficulties he faced, one of those big hills on the, on the, on the uh, marathon he was running was the cross. And he endured that cross. And one of the things I believe that it's going to say here in just a second, that it helps us understand how we do that. Um, I found that the difficulties that I have faced in life were more internal than external. Sure, I faced external difficulties, finances, physical health, cantankerous people, um, temptations, the world system, I faced that like everybody else. But the real hard pull for me was more of an internal struggle, uh, a desire to want to be accepted, uh, trying to avoid shame or humiliation or embarrassment and those kind of things. Well, the next phrase here says, uh, who for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. All right, so the whole context of what we're looking at here is God's doing something, and as that's accomplished in us, what we're learning to do is walk by faith, regardless of what's in front of us or the path that lies before us. 
Okay. Well, one of the big obstacles that humanity has faced literally ever since the Garden of Eden is shame. A sense of embarrassment, a sense of exposure, a sense of uh, I feel less than or I feel humiliated, I feel disrespected, dishonored, whatever. And because of that, I feel embarrassed. I'm, I'm exposed and, and people can see uh, what a loser I am or whatever. Well, the phrase, to, he's despising the shame. Now, I don't know about you, but in, in the vernacular use of today, uh, if someone says, I really despise that whatever, that thing, that activity, that person, whatever, in our day and time, in this country, and in places I've lived, to despise something typically means you really have an abhorrence for it. You hate it. You, you can't stand it. It's just, ugh, you know. And there may be a little bit of that in there, but this word actually means to hold with contempt. I looked it up one day, and what does it mean to despise something? And I was surprised uh, that I didn't realize what this word actually means. Um, to hold something with contempt. Well, what does that mean? Well, let's say you are given a court order to appear on a certain date at a certain time before the judge for whatever reason, and you just don't show up. You are now in contempt of court. You have treated the court and the authority of the judge who ordered you to be there as little or insignificant. And that's what the word despise means. It means to think of something as small, no big deal, whatever. It's just not that big a deal. And because it's not that big a deal, you don't let it control you. You know, I don't know about you, but sometimes uh, you get a little something in your shoe maybe and you're walking along and it's not enough to make you want to stop and, and take your shoe off. It's there, but oh well, no big deal. Or there's something that is in the way in the house and it's not that much in the way so you just leave it there uh, you have to walk around it all the time it's just no, no big deal you know uh, there's something in your life that is there but it doesn't control you but then there's other things that really do well shame has a way of trying to really control us deeply as it started in the garden of eden you know the bible says when adam and eve sinned they heard god coming and they were, they said, we were afraid and we hid ourselves. They were ashamed. We were naked. We were covered. Uh, they, they, they hid out of shame. And that desire to not be exposed and uh, known um, in our difficulties and our weaknesses is one of the strongest um, deterrents to proceeding in a direction we need to go. A lot of times we won't speak up in a conversation out of fear of rejection and, and embarrassment. Um, and I know people that don't seem to have any of that at all, but there are areas maybe in their life when they do, uh, they, they are fearful of being shamed or humiliated. And back in Isaiah, uh, one of the passages that predicts the coming Christ, he said, it says, I did not turn my face away uh, from the spitting and the shame, uh, but I set my face like a flint, so I know I will not be humiliated. And so 
uh, that Christ knew he was going to have to do this and that he was going to experience this. And so my point is this. One of the things that leads us to make improper decisions a lot of times is the, is the fear of being exposed or humiliated. And we wind up doing or saying something overtly that's sinful, or we do those sins of omission. We don't do something we needed to do in a certain situation because we were afraid of being shamed and humiliated. And my only per, uh, point in really camping on this one idea of shame is that anything, shame or otherwise, that stands in front of us and says, you know, if you do that, this is what will happen. That tries to deter us from the direction that God is leading us to trust him and live life in a way that exposes him, that reveals his nature and character, which is in us. If something's trying to keep us from doing that, we need to hold that with contempt. We need to despise it. We need to Consider it of little or no effect on us. And by faith, do it. I'm sure uh, Noah faced a lot of, hey, Noah, what are you doing today? Oh, same thing I did yesterday, building a boat, a really, really big boat. Oh, yeah? Why are you doing that, Noah? Well, someday there's enough water going to fall out of the sky that it's going to flood the whole earth. And they just would walk away and probably laugh their heads off. He did this for 120 years. <laughs> you know, I'm sure it was crazy Noah building a boat in the middle of a dry land continent because it's going to rain, something it had never done before, and flood the whole earth. I'm sure they thought the guy was completely crackers. And I'm sure that he continued, but he kept telling them, this is what's happening, this is what's coming. Yeah, right, Noah, yeah, right. And it did one day, and God shut the doors on the ark, and Noah and his family and the animals floated away, and the people did not. Okay, so he could have easily said, no, nah, I think I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to do that. Uh, Saul, one of the first king of Israel, was um, concerned that he would, be, that he would look foolish because the prophet... Samuel had not shown up yet to offer the sacrifice and because he thought, well, the people are going to think I'm a fool because I brought them all together for a big solemn assembly and we're supposed to offer the sacrifice to the Lord and the prophet's not here to offer the sacrifice, so he just did it himself out of fear that the people reject him and uh, not respect him as their king. Instead of doing what God had commanded him to do, he did something else. And he did that several times. He would do something different. Uh, when the people were supposed to destroy all the uh, animals and stuff in this kingdom they conquered, he decided to keep some of it. Well, he said the people wanted to, so he, out of fear of the people and what they would think of him and all that kind of stuff, he kept letting um, other people's opinion of him control how he responded rather than trusting God and just doing what God asked him to do because God was faithful and that would be far better to expose the faithfulness of God rather than bow down to the whims of people who were kind of fickled in his life. So in our struggle against sin, he's going to talk about um, shame and those things that really 
we want to avoid at all costs in life, sometimes become like a slave master to us. And the Bible says, you know, anyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Well, it's really a slave, it's an enslavement to those things that are demanding that we sin. You need to do this or this will happen to you. And if this happens to you, that's the worst thing ever. You'll be humiliated or shamed or rejected or taken for granted or whatever. Uh, we need to let those things, okay, it is what it is. The shame is going to come, but I'm not going to let that control me. What's going to control me is my Father. You know, it says the, Paul said, the love of Christ constrains me. It's the love of God that controls how I choose to respond to him and others, not the difficulties that are looming around me trying to take control of me. All right, so the next thing says, after despising the same, it says, and he has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So his trek through this difficulty had a destination, and it was seated at the right hand of his father. Verse 3 says this, For consider him who endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. All right, so that fixing our eyes on Jesus, well, how did he do that? Again, it's not... And this is kind of what I was taught. Okay, I need to figure out how Jesus did it and figure out how to do that myself. Well, no, Jesus did it, but he's still doing it. He lives inside of me, and he can face the same temptation, the same shame and rejection, the same difficulties today, just like he did then, and he can do it just as well in me as he did in that other body he lived in 2,000 years ago. The connecting link between him doing it today through me is faith, trust. I trust you, okay? You want to speak up and say these words that I know the people in front of me don't want to hear. They'll, they'll reject me for it. Well, he did it then and he can do it now. And how it happens through me is I trust him enough that when I open my mouth, his words come out. And it'll sound like me, you know? He's not gonna you know, make me sound like Shakespeare or somebody. It's, it's gonna be my words. It's going to be my voice inflection. It's going to be my accent. Uh, he'll probably use uh, things that I'm familiar with to illustrate points because I can explain those. But it's really him explaining that through me as I surrender or submit my will to his will in that moment. So we consider him who endured this stuff. And most temptations are an attempt to not have to endure something. Loneliness, rejection. Uh, a sense of failure, uh, those things that cause us a lot of pain, the shame and so forth. Uh, we find something tempting that promises to relieve that pain or help us avoid that pain. In the end, it actually causes more, way more pain than it, than it solves. In fact, it doesn't solve any pain. You know, the devil's temptations are interesting. They always cause what they promise to relieve. You know, they promised to make you successful and now you know you're a failure. You've failed at what you were attempting to do, trying to be successful uh, through some means that was less than honest or whatever. And you realize, okay, I got more money in the bank, but in my heart I know I really failed at what God would have my life be in this moment. All right, so as we look at him and we see how he endured and how he lived, 
completely by faith in his Father, it gives us encouragement that the same strength that was available to him is available to us because he lives in us. He put his spirit in us. You know, Acts 1.8 says, you'll receive power after the Holy Spirit comes upon you. So now you have divine omnipotence, divine power living inside of you, fully and completely. And we can depend on that in any moment. And okay, you know, my boat just sank. You know, can I do like, you know, Yoda in the movie Star Wars where he reached out his hand and he pulled the, the, the little spaceship out of the swamp? Well, no. I mean, I get, that could happen, I guess, if God wants to raise, you know, a sunken boat or a sunken spaceship or whatever. But the bigger issue is, what about my sinking heart that is downcast? And my circumstances aren't changing. Can God lift me up? Well, absolutely. You know, we can rejoice in everything. Give thanks in all circumstances. We can realize that my joy doesn't come from my circumstances. My, my joy comes from the presence of the living God living inside of me who loves me infinitely. And just like he loved Christ, you know, Jesus said, I want them to know in John 17 that you love them even as you love me. That's, that's a big idea right there, that God loves me as much as he loves Christ. But Jesus said that was true. And that helps us not grow weary and lose heart, which is the last part of verse 3. Verse 4 of Hebrews 12 says, You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. Well, what in the world does that mean? Well, as the world and the hostility that comes against us in the world and we're, it's trying to inflict all this shame and humiliation and rejection on us and we need this endurance to stay with it, trusting our Father that He is going to take us through it. It is not going to destroy us. It's actually going to strengthen us and purify our faith and help us trust Him even more, which is the whole reason we're here to begin with. What does this mean about shedding blood? Well, again, if you put it in the context of this passage and what God is talking about, when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before he was arrested, or the night he was actually arrested, it is said that he began to sweat, as it were, great drops of blood. And what was he facing? He was facing what looked like and was the worst path possible for him. And that path was the Via Della Rosa. It was the way of the cross. It was the, the, it was the cross that he was going to die on. And he said, Father, if it's your will, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And so that his, in his striving to stay fully engaged with his father and trust him to the point that he would allow his own person to be beaten, as Isaiah described it, beyond human recognition, and then nailed to a cross and crucified by sinners and for sinners. That he was dying. He was committing the ultimate act of love, and God is love. But it was difficult, and he began to sweat, as it were, great drops of blood. 
Now, I don't know that I have ever done that. Don't know that I ever will. But what he's, he's, he's showing us something, I believe the writer of Hebrews, metaphorically in a way, that um, the struggle that you and I have against sin is trusting God, that he actually knows what he's talking about. Okay, I'm in this difficult situation, and what I want to do is break and run, or I want to medicate it with some substance, you know, that just makes my makes me feel better, or I want to um, get even with those angry people in front of me and hurt my enemies. I don't want to love them. Whatever it is, and he's saying, son, what we're going to do is love your enemies. I'm here with you. We're going to do this together. You know, the greatest illustration, and there's a lot of them in the scripture, are called allegories and types and shadows. The best one in the scripture to illustrate, I believe, the crucifixion was the day he asked Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. All right, so there they are on the mountain, and he has prepared the wood, the altar of the wood, the sacrifice. He's bound his son. He's laying on the altar. He's raised the knife, and the angel of the Lord says, don't hurt the boy. Look over there, and there was a ram caught in the thicket. All right, so a substitutionary death. So Isaac both represented the son of God dying but the ram in the thicket represented the fact that God's son would die on our behalf. Okay, that's, that was something the father and the son did together. You know, so he's in, the, in Gethsemane that night, he's saying, Father, you're wanting to do this. Well, I trust you. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. That was his struggle against sin. Sin would have been, I'm not going to trust my dad. I'm going to do something else. And see, Jesus didn't have a rotten will. He didn't say, not my rotten, stinking, ungodly, sinful will, but your holy will be done. Jesus had a holy will. And so he said, Father, not my holy will, but your holy will be done. He trusted his Father so deeply and completely that whatever the Father wanted to do, he would do that. He would yield to that, surrender to that, submit to that, uh, walk it out by faith, and actually accomplish the, the thing that the Father was wanting to do. All right, so we're going to kind of end there today. But it, it feels like a low spot to end in a way emotionally. Okay, I just had to... You know, sweat this out. I got to sweat blood to make this happen. But in reality, surrendering to the will of God, yielding our will to His, does something. Because if you back up, it says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross. When we finally see what God is doing, as difficult as it may be, the circumstances we're facing, the relationship is difficult, whatever it is, walking through that with him by faith, trusting him, even though it looks like the path he's leading us down is destructive for us, just like Christ dying on a cross. We are able to endure that because we see the joy 
of what God is actually doing. He saw you and me that day. You know, in John 17, which is a prayer, just before they walked out to the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, he said, Father, I ask that they would be with me where I am, that they may see my glory. The only, only thing I want out of this deal is the people. Well, son, the only way you're going to get the people is you're going to have to do something about their sin problem, and the only thing we can do about their sin problem is shed innocent blood, and we're the only ones with innocent blood. Oh. So the joy set before him that had helped him endure the cross, even to the point of shedding his own blood when he was sweating blood that night, in his struggle against sin, the temptation not to go to the cross was you and me. The joy of not of, of accomplishing on our behalf the will of the Father. Because for God, the Father so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. That was the joy set before him. It was in the mind and the plan of God even before the foundation of the world. Because it says the lamb who was slain was foreknown before the foundation of the world. They knew this was part of the equation before they ever said, let there be light. Before they ever created man to begin with, they knew sacrificial love through the death of the Son of God was going to have to be part of the deal. And that was the joy set before him that gave him the endurance to trust his, as he trusted his father, to complete what his father was asking him to do, as difficult as it was. But we're going to pick up on this whole deal of how that applies to us as his children next week, uh, because he really instructs us not only how to do it, not just how to do it ourselves, because we can't do it ourselves, but what he's doing in us. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And he, the same way he lived then, he can and will live now, and is living now in me. And he's training me to endure and see the joy that's in front of me so that I will respond in the moment in faith in God, my Father, in such a way that his will is done by my hands. His words are spoken by my voice. Uh, in the moment, in the place I am, whether it means good times for me or really bad times for me. Um, we can trust our Father that much because He knows what He's doing. Well, these are, these are the real struggles that all of us face. And I don't want to make it sound like, well, this is no big deal. Jesus sweat blood over it. It's a big deal. And it's hard for me, it's hard for everybody because our, our emotions get involved in that desire to avoid shame and and rejection and sometimes that leads us down a wrong path trying to avoid those things when we just needed to plow right through it not by our own strength but by trusting our father because there was something else far more joyous out in front of us that would be accomplished by following him by faith all right again we'll pick up this passage next week uh, or the next session and i love you all and i'll i'll close this in prayer now father we do thank you that you know exactly what you're doing, you know what you're doing in us, and you're never leading us in a path that is ultimately bad. It may look difficult in the moment and be really horrendous at times, but you know where you're taking us and you know what you're accomplishing. 
just as you did through Christ. And you want to do the same thing through us. But we won't be able to do it unless you reveal yourself to us in such a way that we trust you to the extent that we're willing to walk that out by faith uh, in the way we live and speak. Thank you that you will never give up on any of your children and you will complete in each one of us what you have started. And give us that glimpse of you today and every day that draws us into a greater trusting, intimate relationship with you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.